I have great reason to rejoice this morning. I have two, as a matter of fact. Number one, we have two brand new elders here at Providence Baptist. Uh, Brandon Ash and Daniel Weaver were both affirmed by you this past week as being new elders here at Providence. Brandon, we had no worries about, but Daniel, he squeaked by by being voted unanimously into uh, the congregation's to be in an elder. So we're delighted to have you men serving alongside of us, and it's great to, to be able to follow your leadership. Also, we have a special guest, an old friend is returning with us. I think I see Jania Bullock out there. Jania's right over there. Jania is the daughter of Scott and Kara Bullock. Y'all might know Scott as being the army chaplain that served here with us at Redstone for a while. Uh, and I understand your family is going to be returning to the U.S., is that right? Oh, fantastic. Please let them know we pray and we miss them often. It's a delight to have you back with us. And I'm sure everybody's going to crowd around you now and try to find out what all's going on. So don't be too embarrassed, okay? Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, your word tells us in Psalm 100, it commands us that we are to make a joyful noise all of the earth is to do so, that we are to serve you with gladness, that we are to come into your presence with singing. And then the fourth imperative is, know that the Lord, he is God. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning we would know you are God. It is you who made us, and we belong to you. We are your people, and this is even your pasture that you have set your sheep in. So, Lord, we pray that we would be strengthened in our faith, knowing who you are, and that our confidence would be in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. We pray this in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, if you haven't done so already, please open your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 11. Last week, we began a new book or section in Genesis chapter 10, and this new section introduced us to the descendants of Noah, who are at this point in the story are to continue being the image bearers of God on the earth. This was after the flood that cleansed the earth of all other human life. The divine mandate that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, which reads, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. This was to be the continued mission of Noah and his sons. And from their descendants, one part of the divine mandate was occurring, while another was not. The table of nations lets us know that humanity was being fruitful and flourishing at an astonishing rate, but they were not fulfilling the divine mandate of filling the earth. They were not spreading across the world to be the Lord's representatives. And our passage this morning reveals to us what God did in order to disperse this mass of humanity, to sectionalize them and separate them from one another. But it also reveals the state of their hearts as well. Their new default nature ever since sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3. Now, before I proceed with our text this morning, I want to propose a question to you that's based on the sermon title. 
a church without God. Now, in itself, I know that statement is an oxymoron. You cannot have a church without God, because without the triune God, any other assembly would cease to be the church. So technically, you cannot have a church without God. Agreed? Yes? All right, good. But let's say that we're wanting to have an organization, not the church, but like the church, an assembly of people that would be united around some common humanity that would inspire and generate positive feelings. Maybe it could attempt to fulfill this sense of religiosity that most humans need to fill, this desire to worship something and be united around something greater than ourselves. What would such an organization look like to you? What would be their goals and their mission? What would be their practices and their motivations? What might be their rules for living without instruction from the Bible? Everything on the table, so to speak, what would that look like to you? Well, let me pose some possibilities. Would such an organization provide service to the poor and helpless? That way one could feel the gratification of helping the less fortunate. Maybe it would have small groups and community service projects. That way it would fill our need for connection. Perhaps it would have music that could generate an emotional feeling of unity and inspiration. Maybe you would surround yourself with, with beautiful aesthetics so it would create mystery and awe among the congregation. It could arouse your senses of worshiping the mysterious. Maybe there would be some common mission that you could join in or fulfill your sense of purpose, that you could chant a certain phrase that brings peace or, or get others to attend such an inspirational service put on by the production team or promote morality within your family. You certainly would want to promote what you're doing and, and talk up the organization so that other people would join you. After all, no one wants to think that they're pursuing an empty dream alone. Therefore, it helps to, to have others affirm you to approve that this is worthwhile. You, you certainly would want a charismatic leader who could inspire others to participate. Maybe someone with the right smile or or wearing a beautiful crown, or you knew just the right words to, to make you feel guilty enough to motivate behavior. So what would your church look like without God? It's not hard to imagine, really. It's been going on for centuries. I just described what most cults and false religions look like. An emphasis on human connection, human ingenuity, human emotion aesthetics, human vision, and of course, a human leader. You might have passed by one of these places on your way here. It might have even had the word church or kingdom on the sign out front. I can think of at least three within close proximity of these walls. This is nothing new. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1 and 2, and also when he spoke to the council of the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. Our hearts seek to find meaning and to worship something greater than ourselves. And when we turn our worship away from the Creator, we seek out the created things to fulfill this desire. We all have an idea of a God, as Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. 
But if we do not go to him directly, we conceive of a God according to our image rather than his. Instead of reflecting his glory as his image bearers upon the earth, we reflect our own. The Tower of Babel incident might well be one of the first time that mankind tried to bring about a church without God. Let's take a look at this in Genesis chapter 11. I want to break this down into three main points. You can see these on your outline. First, I want to explain why what these people were doing was such a big deal. Second, I want to explain God's solution to this problem. And third, we want to see the results of God's solution. Was this a blessing, a curse, or or maybe just a matter of indifference? And then to conclude, I want us to glean what theological insights and applications might be taken from this text. Now, I hope I don't sound like I'm lecturing when I give you these headings. This is not an academic exercise, but I always find it helpful to know where the preacher is going. I know it helps me to understand better, and I hope it helps you as well. So let's read the first few verses of the text, and I'll explain what the issues were. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So what we are seeing in this text is that there was still one family group that was sticking together. In fact, by using the word people in verse 2 in the singular rather than the plural, they considered themselves one group and were migrating and traveling together. Now, I would suggest there is no reason to think that there were not some who were being obedient to the divine mandate to fill the earth. There's always been mavericks in the crowd. And archaeological evidence seems to suggest a few, a small few, were dispersing. But the greater group was still clumped together. They had one language with the same words. And we're told as this large people, this family, settled in the plain of Shinar. And this place is mentioned earlier in chapter 10, verse 10. When Nimrod founded the four cities of Babel, Arak, Akkad, and Kalneh. Remember, Nimrod's name literally meant, we shall rebel. The problem is not that there's just a single city like Babel, but their people were still living together within a single group. They wanted a single nation on their own by their own power, to be dependent upon one another rather than being dependent on God by faith. And that poses a problem as they are not filling the earth. The next thing they do is make bricks to build their own kingdom. And as they do so, there seems to be some wordplay in place here with this repeated phrase, come let us. We will see in verses 3, verse 4, and verse 7 that this us seems to be an us versus him, excluding God. I will save commenting on that just a little bit later. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, two matters to know here. The first thing we should note in verse 3 is that they have a significant form of technology in place. They're not just collecting stones. They are making bricks. And at the time, there was one method of baking bricks by letting them dry out in the sun, but they are not even doing that. They are making stronger bricks by baking them. 
And they're not just stacking these bricks together, but they're using mortar to seal them. They want the structure that will be introduced in the next verse to be a permanent one. Make it as permanent as they can make it. And second, I would have you note that this is a collective effort. This is not just a few of them. The whole group is united in this project. They all believe and are committed in what they are doing. So why are they making bricks? What is their purpose? What do they seek to do? Well, that is verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And here's what they want to do, the goal. Build a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens. The motivation, let us make a name for ourselves. And the purpose, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. Again, we have that phrase, come let us. Now, I have no doubt that Nimrod was alive during this time. He was a grandson of Noah, just as Eber, who fathered Peleg, when this division occurred. Plus, Genesis 10.10 says Nimrod founded Babel. But this is not just Nimrod saying this. This is a collective effort. Ancient cities were known to be religious sites as well. One only need to read the accounts of Peniel in Judges 8 and Shechem in Judges 9 to see that cities with towers like this were considered to be like temples, places to worship in the ancient world. And they said, come let us. They are collectively saying, let us build a city and tower to reach the heavens. One might interpret that as as maybe trying to reach God. Perhaps they're trying to stretch out and seek God, like Paul suggested in Acts chapter 17. But is it? Mankind was given dominion to rule over the earth. But was he given dominion over the heavens? Does this mean they wanted to reach the heavens in order to expound their boundary without obeying the Lord in the first mandate? evidence suggests it was due to their motivation here in verse 4. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They were wanting the glory for mankind. God wasn't part of this equation for this city. They wanted their name to be magnified. And they obviously knew he existed and what he wanted as they voiced the purpose for this great city, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. They wanted the city of man over the city of God. They had the technology, they had the inspiration, and now they had the collective effort. This was about praise to their own glory, depending upon themselves. So what does God do about this? Now first, let me remind you that God is spirit. He can see everything all at once. He doesn't have to descend anywhere in order to see anything. But sometimes the Bible uses anthropomorphic language regarding the Lord to make a point. And the narrator is doing that here. Verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. It's quite humorous, really. The people are building a tower in order to reach the heavens. And yet it's so puny, God has to come down in order to see it. It would be like the child that has to stoop down to the ground to see the ant hill and what the ants are up to that day. They think they're doing something great, but in the Lord's eyes, it ain't much. And this is his response after seeing what the humans are doing. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They have all one language. 
And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So let's examine this a bit. We need to remember that this is from God's perspective. As we read this from humanity's perspective, we might think that God is worried that man might become so powerful that it might be compared to him. That is definitely not the meaning behind these words. Our omnipotent God worries about nothing. Never has, never will. Everything is under his perfect sovereign control. After all, he just wiped out humanity with a worldwide flood. He can do as he pleases, and his creation is no threat to he or his power. However, it does reveal to us one positive trait, the confidence that he has in man's abilities. When God made us, he gave us wonderful minds and bodies that were meant to think and create just like the one whose image we bear. He wants us to build, and he wants us to write and to sing and accomplish great things. However, we were created to worship the Lord, to bring glory to him, not to ourselves. We bear his image, not vice versa. But of course, in our sin nature, we take a positive and we can turn it into a negative. The word impossible here doesn't mean they could do something like overthrow God. God's concern is their spread of sin and not fulfilling the purpose for which they were created, thereby having the most joy. If God allows this to continue, then nothing will be impossible for their ability to sin and reject their calling to be his image bearers. They would be back to square one before the flood. Therefore, he brings judgment on this immense people group. They say, come, let us do this great project. And God responds by saying, come, let us, meaning the triune God, do this one thing. Confuse their language. That's all it took. Language is an important emphasis in this passage. The Hebrew word for language is used five times. God merely confuses their language and the project stopped. Done. And the last two verses tell us the results. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. We saw last week in Genesis 10, verse 25, that this happened during the days of Eber. And he named his son Peleg, which means division, since this was the era when God divided the world. And in verses 5, 20, and 31 of that chapter, we see how effective this confusion of the languages were. It divided the descendants of all three of Noah's sons into clans, nations, and languages all across the land. Now humanity is fulfilling the divine mandate to fill the earth just as God wanted. Like we said last week, what Yahweh wants Yahweh gets every single time. Now, just because the tower project was left off doesn't mean the city of Babel ceased to exist. It just meant its purpose as being the epicenter of humanity was over. The location was still called Babel, and later it will be changed to Babylon. Ironically, in Akkadian, Babel means gate of heaven. 
However, in Hebrew, it means confusion. Obviously, God wanted all mankind to know that they were confused about how to get into heaven. So what theological insights can we gain from this passage? Is this more than just a quaint story that tells us how different people groups were made to inhabit the earth? I should say so. What can we learn from this event? Let me provide four of these that come to mind. First, never underestimate mankind's desire to be God. Never underestimate mankind's desire to be God. This has been the case ever since Adam and Eve. We want to define what is good and what is evil. We want to direct and control things on the earth. Don't believe me? Take a look at what Russia is doing in the Ukraine right now. Look at what secular philosophy wants to do with our children, telling them that they can be whatever they want to be. But even as Christian parents, can we not be guilty of this also? We, we want to create children in our image rather than in their creator's image. Therefore, we attempt to micromanage every decision to control them rather than teaching them how to think in a godly manner for themselves. I'm just as guilty. I confess that if I got my way in raising my children, they would all study Greek and Hebrew. They would be able to name every single song that the birds wrote and they would be the most excellent women's soccer players you have ever seen. This desire to control, to be a god, is insidious. And we must constantly ask ourselves, Lord, am I allowing you to be God? We just saw in Psalm 103, know that the Lord, he is God. Second, we try to appropriate Yahweh's good gifts to be God. Our skills as communication and even in, in our technology. This thought came to me this mind this past week. I, I took our international friends to see the Saturn V rocket. I personally think it's the greatest human achievement to date to take a person out of Earth's orbit and place them on another extraterrestrial object. But whenever I see the Apollo 16 capsule there in the museum, I love to share Charlie Duke's story. If you don't know who that is, Charlie Duke was the 10th of the 12 men to walk on the surface of the moon. Duke thought his achievement was the pinnacle of what mankind could do. And yet it brought him little satisfaction and yearning for more. After he walked on the moon, he retired from the astronaut program and he became greatly depressed gave himself over into drinking to try to, to drown his sorrows because there were no more mountains left to climb, nothing else left to conquer. We need to be careful about what we think our technology can achieve. But it's at this point in the story that Duke's wife invited him to come to a conference that they were having at his church which led him to find Jesus Christ. And now, anytime you meet the man or you talk to the man, he can't stop talking about Jesus. He's from South Carolina too, by the way. God's amazing how he can change us and give us a greater purpose for our lives. 
But we need to be careful. We need to be careful about his good gifts that he gives us and think over every avenue of what we're doing with them. This extends from AI to video games, from cloning to modern weaponry. We should be asking ourselves constantly, how does what we're doing bring glory to our Creator? Third, we should recognize that the confusion of languages was a judgment from God. Of course, it forced humanity to disperse, but it's more than that. It broke our relationships to one another. And just like sin did to the first man and woman, we cannot help but look at someone different than ourselves and have suspicion of one another. But as is all of God's good judgments, we also need to see that it provided a firewall for us to keep sin from spreading like wildfire. So God's judgments are always good and serve his purposes. We should accept and recognize that Babel is a judgment against humanity. But we should also recognize that diversity to our God is good. We talked about this a little bit last week. We spoke about ethnicity. It was God's design that we be dispersed and develop cultures and languages for his glory. It's going to be amazing to to stand before the throne of God and see different skin colors, different hair textures, different facial features and ages and hear different accents and know that we are all one in Christ, not despite our differences, but in light of our differences. What a glorious day that's going to be. And this brings me to my fourth point. Despite our sin nature, God still wills us to be his image bearers upon the earth. That is still our purpose. And remember, what Yahweh wants, Yahweh... Thank you, some of you are listening, that's good. He will redeem our current situation and he will unify us. But God has a better way to unify men and women, a way that not a single one of us could lay claim to, one that will be all for his glory alone. Paul reminds us that this is the Lord's purpose in his letter in the church, Gentile church at Colossae. He writes in chapter 3, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have to put off the old self with its practices and have to put on the new self, listen to this, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. How is he doing that? Is it just through our actions and righteous living? No, Paul said earlier in his letter that it can only come through Jesus, the Son of God, who is both God and man as the perfect image bearer. He said earlier in chapter 2 of that same letter, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is what God is doing through his Son, Jesus. 
He is conforming us into his image. He is reversing the effects of the curse. He is doing this so that we will all be unified by and through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He is transforming us from sin into the image of his son. God has one solution to remedy mankind's sin. He does not change, nor does his purposes. And he has deemed that Jesus' death resurrection and ascension be the only means by which mankind can be redeemed and restored. This is the good news of the gospel, folks. It will eliminate all divisions. The divide between us and our fellow humans, gone. The divide between us and God, gone. All due to the gospel. The next book in Genesis will introduce us to a man named Abraham, from whom will bless every nation on the earth. That will come from his descendant, Jesus, born from a woman, yes, but also divine. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and before him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, listen, to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In fact, Such a thought makes me want to pray, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's what he wants us to be, holy and blameless before him in his image. So in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons as through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known the mystery of his will. And here it is, according According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Turn to Acts chapter 2. You need to see this. This is page 910 of your Pew Bible. This past week, the church celebrated Pentecost. That was the day that this unification of all things broke loose on the earth, reversing the curse of Babel. Let me read this to you. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that 
we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Go back and read Genesis 10 and see all these people groups mentioned there. Coincidence? I think not. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, said, well, they're just filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last day it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Oh, church, we have the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the solution to all our problems because it will restore our position in the kingdom of God. Many people of different backgrounds, of different ethnicities, different languages, all overcome by what Jesus did for us. All of us united under one king. This must be our vision. This is where our confidence must be, in the gospel, in the gospel alone. It's why we can send out a Jeff and Rachel Gayhart. We can send out a Liz Hale. We can send out a Zach Carter. We can send out a Brian Milby or a Ken Pruitt and a team from our church. Because we know we can send out any of our sons and daughter because what Yahweh wants, Yahweh, he gets it by the power of his exclusive and extraordinary gospel. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I, I hope that I am able through this message to get across two points. If, if nothing else, that when people walk away from this room, that they would have two points in their mind. Number one, that we would never underestimate our ability to sin, to rebel against the one true God, that we would see the depth of our depravity, just how bad we can be. And number two, I pray that we have seen that the way out of that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. That is what Jesus did for us, taking upon himself the full wrath that we deserve for every single sin that we have committed. And then exchanging that for his right standing before you. And that any who come by faith, who believe in what Jesus did for them on the cross, can be saved. What good news. 
the effects of the curse of our sin have been reversed. We now stand before you complete as your image bearer. We stand before you as the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not based on anything we've done, but what Christ did on our behalf. Now, Lord, when we go forward into the world, we carry the glorious gospel of Jesus, representing you well. And so, Lord, I pray that when we leave here, our confidence would be in the gospel. Our hope is not in government. Our hope is not in man-made laws. Our hope is not in technology. Our hope is not in education. Our hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So allow us to be fueled by that thought. Let us go home. Let us get on our phones. Let us call our lost friends and share this good news. Let us go to their houses. Let us go into our neighborhoods. Let us go beyond the borders of this nation and carry this glorious gospel out. And then one day, Lord, we would stand before your throne, and we would look out, and we would see the diversity of all that you have created, all of it being united together under the gospel, and everyone singing praises to you, and we would truly say, what a magnificent God we serve. Look at how he saves. Look at how he saves from Indonesia, from China, from Africa, from North America, from South America, from Australia. Just look at what he has done, because only you can do that. We pray that your praises might be on our lips this morning. Amen.